Recovery Elevator, episode 58. So for the first time on that Wednesday afternoon, I quit lying to myself. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, six months, two weeks, and three days. On today's podcast, we've got Matt. He's a police officer in California, and in that profession, they see some pretty crazy stuff that the average person doesn't see. He went in to get help for his PTSD and came out recognizing that he was an alcoholic. It's a pretty sweet interview. The topic of today's podcast, well, is a topic I didn't think I'd ever have to cover. When I first started Recovery Elevator, I thought I'd be myself and my mom and dad and my brother listening to the podcast. What Recovery Elevator has turned into, I really never saw that coming. We just broke 200,000 downloads. The private groups have over 700 people in them, and the forum is chugging along. The topic of today is sustainability. A couple of weeks ago, I realized something had to give. I'm dedicating, well, I'm volunteering, well, no, I'm paying to volunteer about 25 to 35 hours per week with Recovery Elevator. Now, I want to be clear, it's been worth every second of my time, and the podcast ended now, it would still be worth every second of my time because I've made it over a year and a half sober. But I realized something had to give, and it was not going to be my sobriety. The podcast loses over 200 bucks a month, and you know what? I'm okay with that. All I got to do is look at the recovery elevator sobriety tracker and look at the amount of money that I've saved. I'm clearing well over $200 a month. I'm okay with that. It's an issue of sustainability for the long run. Something had to give. And I really enjoy doing the podcast. I really enjoy connecting with other alcoholics all over the world. So I'm going to continue to do the podcast. The forum, that's also going to continue. That is free. Podcast is also free. The website is also free. But the Facebook group, I had arrived at two decisions. I could either close them down or move forward with a new model. The model I'm moving forward with and have already launched is the membership-based model. In a nutshell, it's a flat monthly rate to get access to the Recovery Elevator community. Before I get more into details about what additional access and benefits you're going to get, let me talk to you about the initial rollout. And I'm going to preface that by saying this. I'm going to be the first one to say I am not perfect. I've made many mistakes with this plan and rollout, and I will continue to make mistakes in the future. It's a huge learning process. However, the one mistake that I've made, the one regret that I have, is I haven't been clear enough about the overall goal here, the number one driver behind Recovery Elevator, the force that keeps putting me behind the microphone week after week, putting myself as an alcoholic out there for the entire world to hear. So I know I need to be clear. You've heard me say it before in the past, shredding the shame. That is the paramount goal of Recovery Elevator, which is battling the stigma surrounding alcohol and addiction. It's this stigma which led me to a failed suicide attempt in 2014. This stigma, it is lethal. It is potent, and I believe it is every bit as deadly as alcohol itself. It's this stigma that makes us get to our worst moment our most acute point in our disease and our addiction before reaching help, before getting treatment, or before an intervention. Sometimes that intervention comes when it's too late, or in a car crash and we're dead, which happened to my friend in 2006. I've gotten a lot of criticism for doing this rollout plan. I've heard a lot of references to 12-step programs saying how this shouldn't happen. This should be a service. Well, again, let me reiterate what I've said 20, 30, 40, 50 times in this podcast. Recovery Elevator is not affiliated with any 12-step programs. We are a community. We are not a program. Side note, I am a fan of AA. I'm about to finish the steps with my sponsor. When I'm finished and my sponsor sees fit, I will also pass on this service to another person as a sponsor. In some of the posts in the Facebook group, I've seen pass on freely what has been passed on freely to us. Where have I seen that and heard that? AA. We're not AA. I've been criticized for preying on alcoholics for monetary purposes. It's not going to take a Harvard MBA degree to connect those dots. And you know what? I'm not the first one to do this. Here's some examples of other corporations, organizations, businesses that prey on alcoholics. I'm just going to name a couple of them that come to mind right now. I don't know. How about Budweiser? How about Coors? How about Jose Cuervo? How about New Belgium? How about Pabst? How about wine? How about all the other alcohol companies out there? Do you think they're making their money off normal drinkers? Spoiler alert, that's a no. I'm in the middle of creating a sober travel company, a sober travel agency. 
What the hell is wrong with a profitable, sober travel agency? Imagine being on the airplane, pulling out the in-flight reading material magazine, and seeing an ad for sober adventure travel. What the hell is wrong with that? Clearly, I'm missing something. There's something written somewhere that I have missed very clearly that says people should not create services that alcoholics would want or maybe might make their lives better. Clearly, I'm missing something. We're not freaks. We're not mutants. We have a disease. There's a huge demand for sober travel, including myself. I also will be going on these trips. The money that Recovery Elevator will be bringing in will be spent on trying to reach struggling alcoholics or people who are newly ready to quit drinking. I got personal criticism from somebody saying I should not be promoting Recovery Elevator stuff on Facebook, the paid sponsor ads. Well, maybe that night in summer of 2014, instead of seeing a Bud Light Lime sponsored ad, I would have seen a Recovery Elevator group post, a sponsored post. Maybe that night would have ended a little different. Maybe I would have had a failed suicide attempt about three weeks later. Who knows? I don't know. But I do know the end goal is clear. It is to reach people who are thinking about quitting drinking, who are questioning their drinking habits. They don't need to go through the shit that I went through. Their bottom doesn't have to be that low. I've mentioned you do need to go through all the points in the recovery process, but they don't have to be so perilous and drastic. Oh yeah, and I don't have all the answers. I haven't even been sober for two years. If you're looking for answers or from somebody who's had more sobriety, press stop right now. It's not me. Okay, now for the rollout. On Friday, I made a video, posted it into the Recovery Elevator private accountability group explaining my decision, my thought process, and what was going to happen moving forward with the group. The majority of people, they were on board. And at that time, I had offered a $65 one-time lifetime buy-in, and the first 20 people to make the purchase were going to get a free Recovery Elevator mug. Pretty sweet. The first 20 orders came in within about 15 minutes. All the fear and trepidation I had about launching this product or this new subscription service were vanished by simply looking at my email address and look, that's the validation. People see the value in this. So on Friday night, I take a photo of me drinking sugar-free Red Bull, watching TV, and I send it to another member in the group. I'm celebrating, right? I'm celebrating. But what happens next and what followed for the next two days nearly crushed me. And I'm going to fast forward to Sunday night real quick when I made a video saying, look, my sobriety is actually more important than a recovery elevator. I'm sorry it is. It's number one. And I actually had to leave the group. I said I was going to leave the group till the new group launches April 1st, but I got back in there prematurely because it's an awesome group. So Friday night, I'm flying high. Sunday night, face down in the dirt, can't get any lower. What happened in between? Well, there were a couple key members who decided they were not going to make the transition, which is totally fine. They did it in a very eloquently stated way. They said, thank you. You guys have been a great support, but I don't see myself moving forward with this new program. Sure, those were tough to read, and I was disappointed those key members didn't make the jump, but I knew that was going to happen. Part of this process is also a filter. We're going to niche down one more time. We're going to make this community even more intimate. So again, maybe half of the people were on board to make the transition, maybe less than half, just an estimate. Another half or a little less than half were not going to make the transition, but they were thankful of the group and wished us best of luck. And then there was another 1% or maybe one to two to three to four, five people that didn't get it. They didn't like it and they didn't want it to happen. People were ashamed. Well, again, one to 2%, but they were very upset. I got personal private messages. They weren't fun to read. In the group, somebody said, I should be ashamed of myself. Well, I'm trying to find a way that I can do what I love and battle the stigma of alcoholism at the same time. I'm not ashamed of that at all. I've had some great ideas of how to make the podcast more financially feasible. Amazon affiliate links, or maybe go on donation based, or maybe try Patreon, maybe try GoFundMe. Well, I do appreciate those emails and ideas. I've actually tried them all. I've received a lot of donations and thank you so much if you have donated but I'm trying to create something different, something a little bit more sustainable. So back to the group implosion. Around late Saturday night, Sunday morning, I'm seeing people creating other groups, saying, hey, come join my group, this group, and that group. And I'm watching my baby that I've spent over a year to build hundreds of hours, hell, maybe thousands of hours spent just dissolve right in front of my face. And those groups, they actually have my blessing. I said that in there. 
The Share Podcast has a great accountability group. Shane with that Sober Guy Podcast, great accountability group. Other accountability groups exist. So it was around Sunday night after I was only to take so much of the barrage of personal insults and comments, and some of them were troll-like comments on the line, I recognized my sobriety was kind of at stake there. And there's no way I can control an online community person by person, but the one person I could control was myself. Sounds something similar to the serenity prayer, you might be thinking. Yes. So I exited the group. And that is the plan. And guess what? This plan, it might fail. I might fall flat in front of my face, in front of the world to listen to and see. But guess what? I'm not going to drink over it. And that really is all that matters. So here it is. Up until April 1st, it's $5 a month. After that, for all of April, it's $8 a month. And then starting June 1st, $10 a month. Just go to recoveryelevator.com and it's on the very front page. Now, if you tell me $5 a month is too much, I'm just going to stop you right there because you'll spend 50 bucks in one night of drinking. It's not the cost. I understand now that transitioning that group from a free group to a paid group, which is something that my friend did in another industry and it worked seamlessly, that was a ticking time bomb waiting to happen due to the way recovery has been structured for 80 years. AA is a free program. Well, I spend probably 15 bucks a month when I go to the meetings. I've never not put money in the pot. But there are some that find me charging $5 a month for this program absolutely hideous, and I should be ashamed of myself. Speaking of the shame, shredding the shame is probably my number one life goal now. Shredding the shame in the society and the world we live in right now is difficult. Shredding the shame with a budget of zero or a budget of negative $200 a month is near impossible. Again, we are not a program, but I vastly underestimated how powerful Recovery Elevator has been for people's sobriety. Recovery Elevator, $5 a month. Rehab facilities, thousands of dollars a month. Some 30 plus thousand dollars a month. So again, I'm going to say what's not going to change. The podcast is free. The website is free. The forum is free. You can find the forum at community.recoveryelevator.com. So Paul, I'm going to pay five, eight or $10 a month for the same thing. Is that, is that right? Or what am I going to get? Well, I'm glad you asked. No, seriously, guys, I've had a vision for recovery elevator and I can pull it off. If I have these resources, number one, you're going to get access to the exclusive non-searchable Facebook group community. This group will be capped at 250 to keep the group intimate. Another value you will see if you decide to move forward with the Recovery Elevator subscription model is the accountability program. I've had this idea for about 10 months. It's really just a bandwidth. I have not had the time to pull this off, but I've been beta testing it. And about 90% of the inquiries that I've gotten, there's a box that I ask says, would you like to be paired with an accountability partner? About 90% say yes. So with this new rollout, you will be paired with an individual accountability partner. You will be partnered with another individual based on whether you're male or female, your sobriety date, your age, and your geographical location. You too will be encouraged to talk outside of the Facebook group, to email, to phone call, to text. Hold each other accountable on a different level. If your accountability partner is not working out, there's a lot at stake here. Not a problem. Email us and we'll get you another one. Another added value will be the online webinar meetups. There will be webinar meetups April 3rd, 5th, and 7th, where we're going to get to know the people in the group. We will continue to plan on having these weekly webinars. People in the group will be hosting the webinars. It's not going to be just me. I'll be attending because I'm curious what you guys know. We've got the online meetups. Let's talk about the real deal. If you're part of the Recovery Elevator community, you can attend the in-person meetups. We've done three of them so far, one in Bozeman, Seattle, and San Francisco, and they're incredible. We're also going to have a national meetup. I've sent 76 emails to Third Eye Blind asking them to play at our national meetup. Haven't heard back yet, but I'll let you know. In reality, probably nobody you've ever heard of will be playing at our national meetup. There probably won't be a band at all because that's not necessary when you've just got a bunch of like-minded individuals in a room. The spark's going to happen within about 15 seconds. Also, you will be able to attend exclusive Recovery Elevator community trips just like the one already scheduled, already got deposits received for the Peru October 6th to the 16th trip down in Cusco, Peru. 
Sober Travel. That is launching and happening. You're going to get discounts and hear about the itineraries first. Most importantly, you're going to have access to a more intense, intimate community. It's your recovery network that is extremely important in recovery. And this network of alcoholics is going to be awesome. Now, I want to be clear, there will be growing pains. In fact, to the nearly 60 people who have already subscribed with their credit card, yeah, you got charged twice. My bad. I've already refunded the orders. I'm not perfect. There will be mistakes made. And I'm also a recovering alcoholic. I'm learning how to do this internet stuff, webinars, podcasts, and I'm also an alcoholic. Not making excuses or anything, but there will be some growing pains. I'm far from perfect. And again, this idea, it might not work, but I got a pretty good feeling it will. And if it's not for you, I totally understand. But instead of writing negative comments, not positive, bringing the elevator down inside the Facebook groups, go ahead and send me a personal email to paul at recoveryelevator.com. Because that's who you really need to be talking to is me, not the other people. They're trying to recover. So before we get to our interviewee, Matt, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. Let me tell you, being hungover on a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it. RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA, and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text Sober Travel, no space, to 44222. Again, text Sober Travel, without a space, to 44222. Matt, how are you? I'm great, Paul. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast episode today. Matt, you emailed me back a couple weeks ago with this an amazing story. Even at the beginning of your story, I was like to share my story. But even after like a paragraph in, I was like, yes, I'm just going to send you the link right now because I want to hear your own voice tell this story. So thank you so much for reaching out to Recovery Elevator. I know I'm going to get a lot of value from this story and listeners will as well. But let's get right into it, Matt. How long have you been sober? I have been sober, according to my recovery elevator counter, five years, four months, two weeks, and six days. Nice job. When's your sobriety date? It is October 10th of 2010, which is a pretty awesome date. That actually helped me with my sobriety because with a sobriety date of 10-10-10, I really didn't want to screw that up. (laughs) <laughs> nice. That's like uh, when somebody gets married on Valentine's Day. They uh, There's no way they can forget that anniversary. So 10, 10, 10. That's a great number. Matt, don't mess that one up for sure. I will do my best not to. <laughs> yeah. Matt, next up, give listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. How old are you? Are you married? Do you have a family? And I don't know, maybe hobbies and things like that. Yeah. So I'm 40 years old. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area still live there. I am a police officer and have been so for 17 years. I'm married with two kids. My son is 16 and my daughter's 19. And I enjoy running, camping, and kayaking. There you go. Nice. Now, you mentioned in the email also your daughter goes to a college in Montana. So what do you think about this part of the country? I love it up there. It's absolutely beautiful. She's in Helena, It's a little cold for my taste, but I hear you guys have had a couple mild winters, so it's fairly inviting, but I enjoy the ocean, and Montana doesn't have that, so I'm kind of tied in to the Bay Area here. Sure, sure. We don't got the oceans, but we got the big sky, the big sky state, so yeah, we got got a little bit of that, and we got a couple freshwater bodies of water, but that's, that's fun too, but Matt... I've got some questions about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. When did it reach the bottom? Was it 10, 10, 2010, or was it something that was leading up to that? What happened? Well, it was actually before that day. It was about two months before that day when the elevator hit the bottom. And I had finally gotten to a point in my life where I was faced with something that I could not handle 
on my own. And that was huge because I had been extremely independent, independent to a fault almost uh, till that point. Just a little bit of background. My father was killed when I was 13. And so I kind of had to raise myself. My mother was there, uh, but I had a younger sister and a younger brother. And so I was going into high school. My mom was taking care of them. She had gone back to work full time. And so I was very independent. After high school, I went into college and then I had my daughter was born when I was fairly young. But I always, every problem that I ever faced, I was able to take it on and deal with it myself. So always, always, always just, I got this, I got this, I got this. And I got to the point one day where I had something that I couldn't get. And what it was, my my dad was accidentally shot and killed when I was 13. Mm. And so one of his old friends had reached out on behalf of their other friend, the guy who had accidentally shot and killed my dad and was extending an olive branch and wanting to know if there was any chance to meet and close the loop. And my initial reaction was, yes, uh, absolutely. I can do this. Uh, I had put up this whole facade my entire life on how perfect things were. You know, I had the perfect wife. I had the perfect family, perfect kids, perfect job. Everything was great. And I was putting out this aura, even though realistically it was a house of cards. And inside, I was I was a wreck. I had always kind of kept people at a distance. I didn't have any close relationships. I was not close with anybody. And a lot of that was due to probably my drinking, probably. A lot of it was due to my drinking. Uh, but I was also, after realizing that I was at this bottom, and I got help. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the PTSD, as I learned, was very intertwined with the alcohol. And so, oh, I don't even know where I'm going with this now. No, but, I'm, I'm following every word. I'm loving it. And you said something about the PTSD was very intertwined with alcohol. And everybody's case is different. Usually it's, it's, it is mixed in with other things. Mine was anxiety, depression, ADHD. And for a while there, when I finally was like, oh, it's anxiety. Let's, let's get a hold on this. It can't be the alcohol. Sometimes it makes it harder to tease out what really is the issue. Did you experience that as well? Or were you like, or were you like, all right, it's PTSD and alcohol. Let's combat both of these. Or were you, were you ever like, okay, PTSD first, then alcohol, because it's probably the PTSD. It's really not the alcohol. Well, you know, I never thought the alcohol was a problem. I grew up in an Irish Catholic law enforcement family. And so I was always around alcohol. So I never saw my drinking as problematic until I stopped drinking. But I started at 14, drank to my first blackout at 14, and I was a binge drinker. When I drank, it was on. So that's just what I knew. You know, tell me more like when you drank, it was on. In one of the emails, in the line of the emails that you say, say you went to a party school and when I drank, I had one purpose, to get drunk. Yes, that's, that's why I drank. And I took my drinking as a badge of honor. So there was no such thing as having a beer. There was no such thing as going out for some drink. If I was drinking, I drank for the purpose of getting drunk. I was a power drinker. I went to a party school. I was in a fraternity. We had a reputation for being heavy drinkers. And I wore it as a badge of honor when my fraternity brothers would say, oh, my God, I can't believe we drank that much. And that just progressed on. Looking back on it, I associated the drinking with trying to connect with my father. He drank Coors beer. There's just this big association with him and Coors Beer. Every time I run into his old friends, they talk about, you know, that's like the one thing they remember or mention about him. So I really tied that in. I was really holding on to some childhood stuff with the alcohol. So I never saw the alcohol as a problem. There were a few times where I thought, oh, maybe it's a problem. You know, when I woke up and I couldn't remember anything that happened the night before, 
those couple times I thought, oh, maybe this is a problem. But then I would just not drink for a week or two. And obviously I didn't have a problem because if I could stop drinking for a week or two, I'm not an alcoholic. I never got a DUI. I never got into serious trouble. I never got into legal trouble because of my drinking. So I figured I didn't have a problem. And I only really realized there was a problem when I went into treatment for the PTSD. So I knew there was something going on in my head. I knew, I, I thought I was going crazy. Was that and, in, in how they dealt with the PTSD? Like they're trying to get to the core root of the PTSD that they found out that the alcohol was a problem. And was that new light that they shed on you? They're like, have a seat, Matt. After our tests and results, uh, alcohol could be a big issue here. Like, how did you find that out? <laughs> yes, that that's basically how it happened. So I found myself when I reached out for help and I reached out for help because of I didn't even know it was PTSD at the time, but when, when I found myself, when I got the phone call from my dad's old friend and I said, okay, I can do this, but I need help. And for me, like asking for help and, and it didn't come out like that. I said it in the middle of a panic attack. I was crying uncontrollably, you know, never, ever felt that way before. Sure. So he said, okay, good. Well, I know these people and they specialize in, in treating first responders who are having some issues. And so he got me connected with the retreat. So I found myself out at the West Coast post-trauma retreat in October of 2010. And so I'm out there and my first inkling that there was a problem was the first night and we're doing introductions and we're talking about the program and what's going to happen during the week. And the lead clinician out there who started the program, he's a police psychologist and, and one of the best in his field. So he was talking, and I don't remember much that happened that night because there was so much going on in my head. Sure. Was this inpatient but, or outpatient, and how long was it? It's inpatient. It's a six-day inpatient. Six days. Okay. So we're there the first night, and he says, you will not recover from PTSD if you continue to drink alcohol. And immediately in my mind, I went, shit. <laughs> You're like, wait, I got and my jacket. So, Where's the door? Peace. I'm out. And Matt, was he talking to just you? Or was there like a group of you guys around there? Or was it just like face to face? There was a group of us. So when we, when we do the retreats, and I'm still, now I go back and I volunteer at the retreat. So I'm part of the staff. Oh, there. awesome. But we have, we have six clients, six or seven clients that are coming through. And then a number of peers who most of whom have been through the program and they are out there. And then we have the uh, clinical staff, the psychologists who are also out there and it's an all volunteer retreat. So there was probably 25 people in the room when he said that. And then we go and we do a bunch of tests and they make us, you know, you do these, I don't know, the psychological tests, whatever you answer all these questions. And then it was the next day, it was Monday morning, where they show us the results of the test. And it's on this big graph on this chart. And it was, like you said, it was literally thrown in my face when I'm sitting there. Now it's in a room one-on-one -on -one with a psychologist who's going over the results of the testing. And she says, okay, here's this chart. And there's two big peaks on the chart. And she says, this first one here, this high mark here, that means you have PTSD. Hmm. And this other one over here, that's substance abuse. We need to talk about that. And I'm like, shit, I'll be damned if I didn't get caught. Wow, so, yeah. Can we, I, I should have asked at the beginning, but include me in on, and I'm going to admit my ignorance on PTSD. Like I always hear it when people come back from tours in Iraq, like you hear it mostly in the military. But I imagine the stuff you guys see on a daily basis is, is things that in my profession and what we, most of us see, we won't see any of that stuff ever. Tell us what PTSD and, and is and who can experience it and might be affected by it. So PTSD is basically it's unresolved trauma and anyone can experience it. We see a high, obviously now we hear a, a lot of, about veterans coming back from the war with PTSD, it's a very big issue with first responders, but 
people can get it as well if they're faced with a traumatic event, whether it's some type of assault, maybe they're in a bank during a robbery, any time when you think you're going to die and your body just goes into fight or flight mode and everything goes haywire, the trauma gets processed in your brain in a different way. Mm. And then it impacts your brain. So the best way it was explained to me is your reaction to a threat is normal. It's a normal human response. So back in the caveman days, if you're walking down the path and a saber-toothed tiger shows up and is going to eat you and it triggers a response and it enables you to either run fast and get away or fight off the saber-toothed tiger, that saves your life. And then you continue down the road and you go about your business. So PTSD is essentially you're faced with that threat going down the road. Your body never turns off fight or flight mode. So now you're still running down the path, even though the saber-toothed tiger is no longer chasing you. Okay, gotcha. If you'd have said grizzly bear, I was assuming I was like down a, a walking path in Montana and a grizzly bear was there, but the saber-toothed tiger, pretty pretty good analogy. That makes perfect sense. And eventually after years of not being able to outrun this saber-toothed tiger, you're going to find other ways to really dole that saber-toothed tiger's teeth with alcohol, right? Is that where the other part comes in? Yes, because I had so many different emotions going on inside you know, there's all of this trauma that that we experience that, as a police officer, just the trauma that we see on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of my stuff, it, it wasn't like one event. It wasn't one shooting. It wasn't one car accident that I responded to. But the accumulation of all of this stuff and a lot of calls involving children, just like oh, a yeah. show going on in my head. And I see. couldn't escape that. And what it What it did to me inside, it tore me up inside. But as a culture, in the law enforcement culture, and it's almost just American culture, you know, we're taught boys don't cry, men don't cry. You need to deal with this. You can't let this affect you. And so I had all of these things that were running on in my head, but I I couldn't process them. The way we were taught, well, the way I learned to deal with that type of stuff was to tap the Rockies. You know, go to choir practice after work, tap the Rockies, go in, have a couple beers, and then go about your business. It just, it fed right into the drinking, the alcohol. When I, on my days off, and I didn't drink on my work days, or at least I didn't drink at work. I would come home from work, and some nights I would drink, some nights I didn't. Uh, but on my weekends, like I'm sitting at home, and all I'm thinking about is these calls, and mm. I can't talk to anyone about it. I don't, I don't talk to my friends, you know, even other cops. We don't talk about how these things made us feel. We can talk about the blood and the guts and the gore, and we can tell these war stories, but we never talk about how we feel. And so I would just, when I drank, I would numb out. And I didn't really sit, I was a social drinker. So when I was at home, like I would just sit on the couch with all the doors and windows closed and watch TV. And most of the time I didn't drink. But when my wife and I would go out and we were in social situations, I always had this worry about, you know, what people were thinking of me and what they thought of me. Like I couldn't have fun without drinking. So when we would go out, I would drink. And then when I would drink, it was on. And so I was drinking and then my wife would get mad because, you know, I'm getting loaded. And I did that because that's how I drink. That's how I knew how to drink. And I felt like I needed to drink in order to be accepted in the social setting. You mentioned in law enforcement that drinking is, is kind of goes hand in hand with that profession. Tell me more about that. Well, I grew up in it. My dad was a cop in San Francisco. So all of his buddies drank. And I just remember all of the family get-togethers and and everything. And then being in the profession myself, growing up and getting into the profession, it's just some – and I don't know about other professions. I worked in sales for a little bit before I was a cop. And we drank heavily in that profession as well. 
But in law enforcement, drinking is acceptable. And I think it's really the accepted way of dealing with the trauma that we see day in and day out. It's the only thing that we can do that's socially acceptable. The only other thing besides the drinking that is the acceptable emotion for cops to have is anger. So, you you know, you get these cops and on their days off, they're, they're drunk or they're angry or they're both. And, you know, we, we talk about that a lot out at the retreat because the, both of those get us into trouble. You know, of, of the two professions that you said, of, of course, sales, are going to be stressful days, but I definitely understand a police officer. I can just imagine that day. It's like, well, you know, I wrote two traffic tickets today. I responded to two accidents. I broke up a bar fight. Oh, it went to three domestic violences. I need a freaking drink. Like, I, I can see how that would just repeat itself, right? I mean, that's got to be a stressful profession. Oh, absolutely. And usually it's it's by the second or third call into the day where I was thinking, I need a drink. I can't wait till I get off to have a beer because the stress of the job, not only is it the calls that you're dealing with, but there's the internal struggle and the demands by your bosses to do this and everything is Monday morning quarterbacked and second guessed. And, you know, it, some days it just feels like you never get a break. And so the only way for me to get a break was to have that beer. Uh, but we, I mean, day in and day out and on busy days, you know, you're going from call to call to call and without a break. So, I mean, there were days where I would literally go from doing CPR on a one-year-old. And then as soon as the fire department takes the child and goes to the hospital, you know, we can go to the hospital, find out, okay, the child did or did not make it. And a lot of times did not. And then it's like, okay, well, you got six hours left in your shift. We have three alarm calls stacked. We need you to get out and and start handling calls. You know, how do you process that? How do you deal with that? Especially as a parent, right? I have kids and most of us in the job have kids. And then you go and you deal with the trauma like that. Matt, I I hope that question is rhetorical because I have no effing clue how you deal with that. How do you deal with that? Well, that's all part of recovery now. Now I know how to deal with that. We do critical incident stress debriefings, which we used to not do. So in a call like that, we get everyone together a day, two days later, everyone involved in the call. And we have a psychologist come in and we talk about how that call made us feel, which is somewhat out of our comfort zone, but we talk about it. And for me, I get out and I do other things. My whole life does not consist of work. Sure. Uh, hang on one sec. With the with psychologist, is that department wide? Or I know it's just for the people out involved in that call, but it were the were the people that were involved in that call that also went to the retreat center for six or seven days? No. So the retreat center is totally different. Okay. But the the critical incident stress debriefings, our department has it set up. We have a psychologist that we contract with and Whenever we have a critical incident, whether it's a, a child death, an officer-involved shooting, a traumatic car crash, she will actually come out and do a debrief for everyone in our department that was involved in that call. Wow, that's really cool, actually, that they, they provide that service for you guys. Do you find that beneficial? Absolutely. We have a whole peer support team set up now to specifically deal with and help address the mental health issues with our department. We try to keep our people healthy. And so we don't just do the after incident type stuff, but we're trying to go out and be proactive and teach stress management and talk about mindfulness and, and just how to live a happy life, how to have a life outside of law enforcement, because what happens in law enforcement and, you know, I heard the term, terminal uniqueness in one of your podcasts recently. And boy, that is, oh, such a problem in law enforcement. Yeah. Episode 53, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. How is that a problem in in law enforcement? Well, because we all think that we're unique. We think that we're different because we're cops. And 
it's almost a coping mechanism for us because if we can separate ourselves from them, from other people, and we don't personalize the critical incidents, it makes it easier for us to deal with them. So what happens is we stop associating with people who are not cops. The nature of shift work, when you work every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, it's hard to have a social life when all of your pre-cop friends are going out on those nights and you're sure. working. When you're, when you're off on Monday and Tuesday, there's not a whole lot of stuff going on. So you start socializing with cops. And pretty soon you're going to work. And then when you're not at work, you're hanging out with cops off duty. And all you're doing is, is talking about cop stuff. There's a, another police psychologist that talks about the use of And what that means is cops, when they get five, six, seven years into their career, they talk about all the stuff that they used to do. They used to go kayaking. They oh, used to used go to, mountain okay. biking. Yeah. And when you stop doing that and your whole life is just based on going to work, you, you have a much more narrow perspective of the world and it makes it really hard to see the good in the world, to see the other stuff, because we see bad stuff at work all day long. No one calls the cops because they're having a good day. No one calls the cops to say, hey, we're having our two-year-old's birthday party, and we just wanted to invite you over so you could see him and, and see how great our two-year-old Yeah, I, yeah I, I imagine. And um, okay, okay, you said something earlier when you finally realized like you couldn't control you're drinking. That was difficult because being a cop, I imagine there's a lot of stuff you can control or if, or at least if somebody is, is upsetting you or there's something that you don't like, you you could probably try and step in and legally control a situation either by pulling somebody over, you know, telling somebody there's a mandate in this jurisdiction, you can't be doing this, that, and that. Um, when you were sitting in that room at the treatment center and, and that woman pulled out a probably very good looking graph with probably colors and a bar graph and a pie chart, you know, showing you that you a had PTSD and the next spike was you're an alcoholic. Did your hand like go to your holster and be like, well, I will, I will solve this alcoholic problem with, uh, with my pistol or my firearm. I mean, how did you cope with that when you can't control that? Yeah, I was at a loss. I was just running it through my head. Because at that point, I thought, well, what am I going to do? If I'm an alcoholic and I can't drink anymore, what am I going to do? Because my whole life outside of work pretty much revolved around drinking. I really enjoy camping, and I would take my kids camping. My wife would go, and you know, we, we did a lot of camping. But the reason I liked camping is because we can set up the campsite, and now we're camping. That means that I can get up in the morning and have a Bloody Mary. Oh, yeah. And then, camping. You're supposed to do that. Oh, yeah. And then switch to beer at noon and then Red Bull and vodka at about four to keep me awake until whatever time I passed out and then wake up at 10 or 11 the next morning and do it all over again. But I'm camping, you know, golfing with my buddies and going to baseball games and everything that I did involved alcohol. Mm -hmm. So when she said, uh, this is substance abuse, we need to talk about that. It was like, what am I going to do? How the heck am I going to do this? So we went on through the week, and on Wednesday night of the retreat, they do a piece on substance abuse. They have speakers come in, and then we actually do an AA meeting okay. that night. It was my first one ever. And after listening to the speakers before the meeting and they were telling their stories and they were talking about their habits. And then we also had to sit down and take the 20 questions. And this is important because I saw some questions like that in magazines and other stuff before. And I would read these and anything that I answered yes to, I always had an excuse. It was always a yes, but so I knew I wasn't an alcoholic because I could read in all of these other yeah, the, the terminal right. uniqueness had a great explanation for every box that was checked yes, but... Yeah. yeah, so for the first time on that Wednesday afternoon, I quit lying to myself, and a yes was a yes. No buts, a yes is a yes. And so I answered the questions honestly, and I thought I did pretty well until I looked at how the thing is scored, and once again, another oh shit moment. Yeah, okay. but but answering those questions, you know, honestly, it had to be liberating, right? Or how did that feel? Yes. 
it felt great because I didn't have to think about what I was going to put after the butt. It was just a yes. And it was like, I had already surrendered. I surrendered when I walked in the door on Sunday night and I knew that I had to do whatever it was going to take to get better. And so when I just answered yes, and it was like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. All right. Now what? Now what? And And every yes that you honestly answered, what I realized looking back, you created just a tiny sliver of accountability, but with the next yes, a little bit more accountability. And after enough yeses, you had a little bit more accountability. And then you reach this point where you go, okay, now what? And tell me what happened after you said, now what? So that night when we had the AA meeting and we were going around, everyone was introducing themselves. For the first time in my life, I introduced myself as an alcoholic. And that was, it was liberating. It was kind of weird because I had never wrapped my head around it before, but it was very apparent. So I knew, okay, I'm an alcoholic. And so at that point, I just needed to figure out what I was going to do. Luckily, I went through the retreat. And at the end of the retreat, everyone leaves there with a 90-day plan and a a peer that they're responsible for checking in with. Uh, Essentially, it's a sponsor, uh, but it's not AA, so we didn't call them a sponsor. So I left the retreat on Friday knowing I was an alcoholic, and there was a lot of recovery to do from that point forward. And so the first 24, 48 hours were great. You know, I came home, I told my wife, and I told her I was an alcoholic, uh, and we, we talked about all that stuff. But I... I didn't really, they sent us home with a big book. I didn't read it. I didn't need to. I knew I was an alcoholic. So I just figured if I stop drinking, everything will be okay. Oh, and the journey starts. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And then in your email, it says your, your, your pink cloud popped after about 10 days. Mine lasted for about eight months of being a dry drunk. Fortunately for you, Matt, you, it sounds like you were, an old, you were only a dry drunk for 10 days, so I envy you for that. Yeah, it was pretty amazing how that happened. So after the retreat, my wife and I went to Reno, and that's when, when the clouds started to crumble, and then it just popped. I hear that but often happens in Reno. Reno. Yes, <laughs> and like I couldn't drink, so I knew I, I knew I couldn't drink. We went with another couple, and we were going to see this comedian. So we went up and it started going bad in the car on the way up. And my wife and I were just at each other. And then we got up there. It was just like, it was the worst weekend ever. I don't think we said two words to each other. The drive home was extremely awkward because we didn't speak to each other. And we were driving with this other couple. So that was all kinds of weird. And then we caught, we got home and then I, I called, called my, here that I was accountable to, basically my sponsor. And I told him, I go, you know, I don't know what happened. We went to Reno. It was terrible. My wife and I, and he says, well, you know, have you been to a meeting yet? No. He says, all right, well, tomorrow night we're going to a meeting. I'm like, okay, fine. So I, I drove down. Uh, the meeting was about an hour away, but I drove down there. I met him. We went and grabbed a cup of coffee and then we went to the meeting. So this was my first real meeting outside of the retreat. And the topic of discussion that night was a dry drunk. Wow. Good and timing there, huh? I had never heard that term before. And then all these old timers start talking about it. And the, I mean, lights just kept going on light after light after light. It's like, Oh my God. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I got it. I, so I went home and I opened up the big book and I started reading it and like actually hearing the words and it was like, oh, okay. So uh, these steps, I actually need to start like working those. Oh, this is like, this is a thing here. So I ended up going back to the meetings. And the meetings that I went to were first responder only meetings, which is, it kind of plays into the uniqueness thing, but at the same time, it works for getting newcomer first responders in the door because we have this unique spot where going into a regular meeting, and this has happened to a few of us, we're going into a regular meeting and there's folks in there that are ordered by the judge, and, and we had direct involvement in that case. Sure. I've gotten past that. I 
I go to regular meetings now, but I also regularly go to first responder meetings. But anyways, I started going to the meetings. I got involved with a group of people who I was accountable to. They actually cared about me. They understood what I had been through. A lot of them had been through either been through the retreat or been through some type of traumatic event and got better themselves. And so now I'm going in and I'm, I'm talking to these folks every week and like, I didn't want to let them down. So I, I started developing more accountability, not just with myself, but with these other folks. And I, I started building a network and I saw how they recovered. I, I saw things that they were doing, you know, listening to guys that had 20, 25 years of sobriety. That was, I mean, I was happy to have 25 days at the yeah. time, but I knew, I knew I didn't want to go back because the hole that I was in with the isolation, the depression, the exhaustion, the isolation, I mean, just, it was just, it was so bad. I, it was horrible. And I never, ever, ever want to get back into that hole. So I just needed to do what they did. So I kept going to meetings. Hearing guys that have 25 years sobriety and they still go to meetings all the time and they go to meetings when they're on vacation and they talk about these different meetings that they go to all over. So I got involved with them. I kept going to meetings. I kept going back to the retreat. So they let me come back and volunteer as a peer at the retreat, and this was five years ago, and I was going back about every other month, and that helped because I was meeting other people who had been through the retreat and other people who had been through similar experiences, and we could talk about our stuff, and we can talk about the bumps in the road that we were hitting in our recovery. And when I realized that the stuff that I was experiencing was normal, other people had experienced it too, and we could just talk about that stuff and be open and honest. It was just like this amazing, powerful experience, and that's kept me sober. It's so her. communal when you meet other people. You just instantly have things in common. And Matt, it sounds like in about 14 days' time, you hit pretty much all of the value bombs that I learned after interviewing 52 alcoholics for one year at a time. I'm going to go back and jot it down some notes here. Number one, when you went to the retreat, surrender. That would be acceptance on that. Next one would be your honesty. You honestly answered those questions, which in turn created little pieces of accountability. In there, you had built a recovery network. You didn't really know your network was going to be a vital line until after you had that miserable weekend in Reno, you called your peer sponsor. And he's like, you know what? Let's go to a meeting. There, you walked in, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's all these people just like me. You hit the conduits. You found that link to that higher power, whether you realized it was there or not. You were just in this room where it was very healthy to your recovery. And Matt, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, are you ready? I am ready. Matt, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, God. It was all the times of waking up and having no clue what happened the night before. I mean, blocks of just unknown. And that, oh, scary. Very scary. Matt, that is a common answer, which is terrifying. The worst memory is the no memories. It's terrifying. And next question, number two. We've all heard of that aha moment, Matt. You mentioned one of these earlier. What was an oh, shit moment when you're like, oh, gosh, I might be an alcoholic? Oh, when I heard Dr. Kamina say that if I didn't stop drinking, I wasn't going to get better from PTSD because all I wanted was to get better from PTSD and quitting drinking wasn't on the table, but then it was there and it was like, shit, now what? The card up the sleeve. I love it. And Matt, starting after this call, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Keep working with others. I'm part of our peer support team at work. I go back out to the retreat and I help other first responders that are dealing with PTSD, but half of which to come through have some type of substance abuse issue that they're also dealing with. And working with them really helps me stay grounded and stay connected. And the other part of that is I just enjoy life to the fullest. I get out, you know, I live in Northern California. I run, I kayak. 
I've got a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old that I just love being connected to and sharing things and being a part of their lives, talking to my wife, sharing things with her, and just being connected to other people. I love it. Matt, and next up, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a 12-step program, a book, mobile app. What you got? Well, I'll tell you right now, my favorite resource has been the Recovery Elevator podcast. Thank you, Matt. I've been listening for a few months now, and it's it's part of this bigger set of resources that I have, but I usually I listen to podcasts on Tuesday nights when I'm driving to my meetings. My meetings are a big part of it. Going out to the retreat and working with other first responders is another piece of it, but it's all, I mean, all of these resources, it, it's not just one, it's using them all. Because some days one works great, and other days a different one works better, but building as many resources that I have is really what works best. Jamming your recovery portfolio full. I love it. And Matt, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, the best advice I received is that there's no problem that a drink can't make worse. And that really resonated with me. I love that one. And it's so true. And Matt, believe it or not, you are a seasoned veteran with five years of sobriety. I was just thinking back. um, I think the average sobriety length of somebody being interviewed on this podcast is right around the one to three year mark. So I cannot wait to hear what you got for this next question. Matt, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about getting sober? Find your clan. Find a group of people that have been through something similar and just be open, be honest with them, be accountable to them, and and enjoy it. Enjoy them, enjoy life, and don't let them go. And Matt, before we depart, you got to give listeners your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if. You might be an alcoholic if the line at the open bar is too long at your friend's wedding. So you walk down to the liquor store and get a bottle of Jack Daniels to keep under the table so you can avoid the line. Oh, I I love it. I love it. The line at the open bar where you just, it's like a dollar tip, the open, oh my God, I love it. Oh, Matt, thank you so much for, for that one and for joining me and helping me stay sober today. Amazing story. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep in touch. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Paul. One of the great parts about the Recovery Elevator meetups is I got to meet Matt in person about a week after we did the interview. The guy's awesome. I hope he's going to be part of my recovery network for a long time. So Recovery Elevator, before we close out, I want to remind you of the one thing that alcoholics are very good at doing. That's getting back up on our feet. I got completely knocked on my butt when that Facebook group imploded. I imploded it. It was doomed from the start. What I did do is I got back up. On Monday morning, I woke up with this new feeling of determination. I have to do this. I can't stop now. And maybe my plan with Recovery Elevator moving forward, it isn't the right way. It maybe won't work, but who really cares? I'd rather fail fast and know what's not working so I can change it, fine-tune it, and make a better product moving forward. I'm not joking when I say this stigma is nearly as deadly as the disease. And battling this stigma is something I would be more than happy to dedicate my life to battling. I just got to find a way to make it financially feasible. Hence the plans. So Recovery Elevator took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 